Hello, everyone. This is Steve Smith, WCG Patient Radio, speaking today about biostatistics in clinical trials. WCG is a company focused on the ethics, safety, efficiency, and success of clinical trials as a means for creating treatments for unmet medical needs. Today, I'm speaking with Janet Wittes, founder and president of Statistics Collaborative, also known as StatCollab. That's a group of biostatisticians who provide advice to developers of drugs and devices running clinical trials. Dr. Wittes is a fellow of the American Statistical Association, the Society for Clinical Trials, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and an elected member of the International Statistics Institute. She was editor-in-chief of Controlled Clinical Trials and is currently an associate editor of the Society for Clinical Trials journal called Clinical Trials. Her authored publications Statistical Monitoring of Clinical Trials, a Unified Approach, is widely used by students and researchers in biostatistics. She's won numerous awards and recognitions, including Outstanding Achievement by a Woman in the Statistical Sciences and the American Statistical Association's Award for Excellence in Consulting. She chairs data monitoring committees for several large multi-center trials sponsored by the National Institutes of Health and is a former member of the FDA's Cellular, Tissue, and Gene Therapies Advisory Committee. She received her AB in mathematics from Radcliffe College and her MA and PhD in statistics from Harvard University. Hello, Janet. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. I wanted to ask you some questions now and um, let you uh, talk to us about biostatistics more of such a fascinating field. You've worked in the biostatistics field on clinical trials long enough to see transformation in the science and medicine of clinical trials but also in the use of biomarkers as evidence in clinical research. Tell us what biostatisticians do and what positive impact these experts can have on clinical trial success. Well, thanks for the question. We biostatisticians are really strongly intellectually invested in designing and implementing and analyzing clinical trials in a way that produces reliable results efficiently. And both the words reliable and efficiently are very important. When a potential participant joins a clinical trial, we, everybody involved in trials, and we statisticians as well, want that trial to have a very high probability of producing interpretable results. If the trial shows that the product under study is beneficial, well, that's great, then we have a new treatment. But if it clearly shows that the product does not work, That, too, is important information. Both these kinds of trials are, in my mind, successful trials because we've learned from them. To me, a failed trial is one that produces ambiguous results. Our job as biostatisticians is to work very closely with clinicians and patients to help ensure clear results from trials. I know that biomarkers can be used for different purposes. And this is a topic that's become interesting to me and many others as patient advocates. And I wanted to ask you about that, about biomarkers. I'm often focused when I talk about this myself with non-professionals uh, as on discussions about the use of biomarkers as surrogate endpoints in trials because we wonder to what extent such use could speed up a trial or lead to more trials succeeding. I think of surrogate biomarkers as something biochemical that allows a clinical trial result to be seen more 
expeditiously than, say, clinical measures would do, which can take a lot longer to manifest. Can you help us understand the role of biomarkers in clinical trials and whether they indeed can help us see more quickly and accurately whether a drug we are testing is helping or not? So that is a very important question. And of course, the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. The, the real question is when can we use a biomarker or a surrogate instead of a clinical outcome to, to, grant, to lead to granting approval to a drug? The classic surrogate, which I think we all know about, is blood pressure. There's been over a half a million people who've been enrolled in clinical trials of blood pressure. And the data from these trials has unequivocally shown that reducing blood pressure leads to reduction in the chance of having a stroke. So a new blood pressure medication doesn't have to show that it reduces stroke. All it has to do is to show that it reduces the blood pressure, which is a surrogate. In general, if we're in a disease situation where the surrogate has a very, it's very highly predictive of the clinical outcome of interest, we can use that surrogate as the outcome in a clinical trial. And that can lead to huge reductions in the size of the trial, i.e. the number of participants in the trial, and even the length of the trial. And is, a, is the use of the choice of using a biomarker um, controversial? I mean, I've heard a number of times when an organization uh, that's done a clinical trial would like to use biomarkers, but they can't. The clinical data still rules the roost. And that, although that takes longer, I understand it's, it's got more respect or power among the analysts. So is that, is that a fact? Well, remember, a drug rarely has a single target. It really does only, it rarely does only one thing. D drugs have complicated mechanisms. And so it can be that a drug that alters the surrogate doesn't lead to improvement in the clinical outcomes. A very recent example is torcetropib. That's a drug that increases HDL, and HDL is the good cholesterol. Small clinical trials unambiguously showed that torcetropib increased HDL. But the question was whether that intervention actually would lead to lower rates of cardiovascular events, like heart attacks. Mm -hmm. So Pfizer, the company that developed the drug, mounted a very large study randomizing people. That means like flipping a coin, half got the drug and half got placebo. But the study was stopped early because the death rate was higher in the torcetropib group than in the placebo group, which was a very bad surprise. And there are many other examples when a drug shows benefit on a surrogate endpoint, but actually causes harm. Examples are antioxidants, hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women, some chemotherapeutic agents for cancer. So we therefore need to be really careful when we make an assumption that a change in a surrogate predicts, out, predicts benefit on clinical outcomes. Now, the FDA has some really useful language related to surrogate. It can give a drug so-called, quote, accelerated approval. That means you can prove it quickly 
on the basis of a surrogate outcome when the change that it produces is what the FDA says, and this is a quote, reasonably likely to predict clinical outcome. And the hooker is the words reasonably likely. When we're dealing with common diseases like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, lung cancer, regulators and clinical trialists are quite skeptical about the use of surrogates because even though clinical trials can be very cumbersome and expensive, large clinical trials are possible and they can study the clinical outcome. The situation is really very different with orphan diseases because there's often so few patients that you cannot perform a trial of a clinical outcome. And so the outcome that you, you use is, a, is often a surrogate outcome and the standard of reasonably likely is, needs to be softened. So it sounds like um, the um, large clinical trial is much more trusted and re reliable as a measure, but in the case of the rare diseases with small populations, you just need to make a leap of faith, and then I know they build in other ways of trying to mitigate the risk that entails. So how can various approaches in the use of biostatistics uh, impact a clinical trial in which a very small patient population is the only population available, as in the case of, say, ultra-rare diseases? And what should drug developers consider as they plan and run their trials? Well, I would say a drug developer should come to statisticians nice and early, because we actually, very tiny trials are really interesting to us and very, very important. Um, in a small trial, each datum for each person is exquisitely important. In a large trial, you can there can be a lot of imprecision and you still get a really clear answer. In a very small trial, everything matters. Um, there's no magic formula in the way you design a small trial, so you have to really understand the statisticians, have to really understand the disease, and also what the patients want and what, are, what outcomes are important to the patient and the patient's family. And I would say not only um, should we as statisticians understand the diseases but, that we're working on, but the patients, the doctors, the patient's families need to understand what we are doing and why we're making the recommendations that we are. So there's gotta be a lot of interaction between the statistical groups, and the drug developers and the patients and the patient's family. Yes, you're speaking to the all-important collaboration that it seems to have gotten so much uh, stronger over the past couple of decades when there's a lot more working together between the different parties who are stakeholders to clinical research, including regulators with, their pa with the patients and the, um, the sponsors of the trials and the people in the hospitals and so forth. And because it is a complex dialogue, it, if people keep keep communicating, it seems to help. Yes, and I, I want to say a word about back in the 90s when, the, when AIDS was such a scourge, and the AIDS activists were terrific. They worked really closely with the docs, with the regulators, and with the, with the statisticians, and became, I think, a model for how patient advocacy can lead to really, really good drug development. Yes, thanks for mentioning that. That's a wonderful um, 
part of drug development history that a lot of people who were watching the news back then may have see, uh, seen the AIDS activists raising a ruckus on Capitol Hill to get attention, which is an important part of advocacy when there's an underserved population that gets no attention. But they were behind the scenes doing a lot of that detailed work as you're describing with the other folks they needed to collaborate with. So that that really is the model. And it, the rare disease advocates were, um, you know, with the Orphan Drug Act uh, fresh, you know, freshly being hammered out, were there with them in the in the 80s. And then it just um, it came together for rare diseases too, where we have many more acts of Congress and incentives and so forth, which have gotten more rare disease trials up and running. So that is very much thanks to that time and AIDS activism. And one of the things I'd like to add that I've seen at the FDA now, several rare diseases that I've been involved with, um, the advocates come and the patients come to this small group meetings at the FDA and describe what aspects of their diseases, their disease is most important to them and what risks they're willing to take. And that I think is a really important thing for drug developers and the FDA to know um, how the patient feels about his or her disease and what's the kind of chances they're, they're willing to take. Yes, the, that's the risk versus benefit um, a, approach that a lot of advocacy groups would love to see more of, and the regulators are quite willing to talk about it, and together those groups are trying to edge up to how can we use the risk versus benefit feelings of the families in collaboration and in conjunction with um, solid biostatistics and other more rigorous research techniques so that if we need to, we can get a drug developed, but we don't overstep our bounds and get too, too loose and cause people harm. So that seems to be the frontier at which we stand. Yes, and I would say that in some ways, in my experience, patients are often willing to take, they're often less risk averse than regulators. And that's an interesting, that for me has been interesting to see that they're, that the regulators tend to be very risk averse and the patients not so much. Yeah, so the, um are going, uh, the, the question that I think a lot of us have is just how far will this go as we modernize the clinical trials process and science and medicine keeps advancing, um, how will this end up? Yes, and as drugs become more precision targeted, um, this may become less of an issue. Yeah, that, 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 that is one of the things that is to be hoped. Well, I think our time is up. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Janet Wittes. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. This is Steve Smith, WCG Patient Radio. We are speaking today about biostatistics with Janet Wittes, founder and president of StatCollab. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>